Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, the Doomdorf mystery by Melville Melville Davison Post. This is first published in the Saturday Evening Post. No relation. Um, July eighteenth, nineteen fourteen. I don't. I actually don't know that it's no relation, but I think it's funny that the guy is named Post and he's published in the Post. Um, he was wholly unfamiliar to me before I found this story, um, and I think I found it by reading an essay about locked room mysteries. I think that's what it was. Um, it might have been in uh, Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine. And then I went and dug dug up this original um, magazine post and our magazine um, publication. And I, I found it, I, sh- I should just send this to Eric right away. And I did. <laughs> what did you, uh, had you heard of this guy, Melville Davison Post? I had not. It's amazing because he, uh, he was a star. Apparently, and uh, this story has a character in it who is a continuing uh, detective character. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just like what we expect from both before that era, Dupin and uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes, and, and after this with uh, Poirot, for mm-hmm. example, from uh, Agatha Christie. Uh, it's interesting that so many of the detective stories and this is this is definitely a tale of a great detective mm-hmm. and the subgenre of locked room mystery so many of them have repeated characters mm-hmm. it makes you wonder what the real interest is in such stories i i swear i read an essay about this uh when i was studying up for this guy melville davison post and it was saying um uh, somewhere on the internet, I'm pretty sure. It was saying that basically uh, mysteries, especially locked room mysteries of this 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 type, the Sherlock Holmes style uh, story, is is a religion, <laughs> which is pretty funny, considering that uh, this story is so full of religion. And I don't think that's exactly right, but I I was introduced to this genre from my grandfather, who was a big Ellery Queen. And Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine and that sort of subscriber. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I first heard of August Derleth not through Lovecraft, but through his pastiches of Sherlock Holmes. Um, and I, 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 I thought myself quite familiar with the genre. Um, you know, I, I, I know about Poe and Dupont. I know about Agatha Christie, read her stuff. I know about uh, Holmes and Conan Doyle. Um, but Melville Davison Post is like a he is before before um, uh, Rex Stout, who creates Nero Wolf. He's basically, I think, the biggest. It turns out he's the like the biggest deal when it comes to American uh, detective stories of this kind, and and it's really shocking to me that I'd never even heard of him. Well, you know, they talk about the literary marketplace, mm. uh, reputations rising and falling. Uh, it'd be interesting to know why this person's stock went up and then when it went down. As far as it going up is concerned, I think that the story that we have in front of us today, I don't know if it's representative 
of Post's work. But the story we have in front of us today, I think, suggests a worldview in a comforting way that perhaps World War I shattered. Um, as far as that comment goes, the, mm, detective, right. fiction, thank you. the de- detective fiction is a kind of religion. In the Enchafed Flood, Auden said about the tale of the great detective, and as opposed to lots of other crime and mystery stories, the tale of the great detective is the, the thing that um, most of us understand with Arthur Conan Doyle that began with, say, the purloined letter. It's really Poe who first got the form right, where you have a detective, a criminal, the detective matches minds with the criminal, and by doing that, by being able to adopt the mindset of the criminal, is able to understand what was going on and then figures out um, what was wrong and if it is possible for there to be justice will bring the criminal to justice. If it's impossible, at least we'll settle our minds so that we understand how the world functions. Auden says, speaking of these kinds of stories, that they indulge the fantasy that hidden guilt will be revealed. Mm. I think he's right. I think, frankly, that, um, and I say this not wanting to offend other people's sensibilities, But I think that Santa Claus, knowing if you've been naughty or nice and handing out rewards accordingly, suggests that, you know, you can be doing it, but your hidden guilt and your hidden virtue will be seen um, by some higher power. Uh, And frankly, the notion that we are going to find ourselves before St. Peter and the wheat and the chaff, the the goats and the sheep will be divided, and those who have been bad will be damned, and those who have been good will be saved and given life eternal. The notion that we can do things, but what is hidden uh, will eventually come out, that's a very appealing fantasy, Mm -hmm. especially for people who who may think that they're just better than the world around them. By golly, if if only they knew, you know, how smart I am. Boy, I've had the best darned ideas. If I were in the right place, I could have I could have succeeded that. I could do a, as good a job as that actor in the t- in TV show or you know, we all have superman kinds of feelings and these stories I think I think Auden is right. They indulge that fantasy because the great detective figures out what's going on. And in a locked room mystery, what you get is not just that no one has been able to figure out what happened, but you are able to have the narrator lay out a set of conditions, the givens, the done, as they say in literary criticism, um, lay out a set of conditions which should make it impossible for anybody to figure it out. And then, of course, if you, as the reader, can figure it out, <laughs> wow, you are great. That's but even right. if you can't, you can see that some other person can do it for you. Mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes does this brilliantly in uh, 1892, 94. The Adventure of the Speckled Band is, I think, one of the classic locked room mysteries. And it begins with Holmes demonstrating 
his own godlike physical strength to the woman who comes and asks for help. Um, so what you have here, apparently continuing characters, right? Um, the narrator's uncle Abner and mm-hmm. Squire Randolph, they occur again and again and again. And they, they and stand the same setting up. too. Uh, it's always West Virginia. Um, and it's, uh, uh, pre civil war, West Virginia. So it, actually that's a, that's an interesting, uh, if I may, historically, that's an interesting problem. Because Post himself was born after, uh, after West Virginia became a state. He was born in, in 1869. He was born after the Civil War. But Vir- West Virginia didn't exist as a state mm-hmm. until 1863. So, uh, uh, Western Virginia, I guess, is what I mean. <laughs> yes, but, well, okay, but it, it makes a... It sort of makes a difference. Yes, it, it says the land west of the mountains, right? Right, and we keep talking about the law of Virginia mm-hmm. doesn't really extend this far. But if we were reading this in 1914, we might have expected the law of West Virginia. So if a reader of the Saturday Evening Post were adequately historically informed, he or she would know that this had to be pre-Civil War. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting because – the, the racism is figures in this story, and blacks are mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's uh, it's actually it's really jam packed. This story with uh, an amazing set of clues, and I think um, the more I've read it like four or five times now, which is I'll, usually that's a little more than I usually read for us, <laughs> you know, um, you know, if I'm prepping, but. Um, one of the reasons is I'm I'm just marveling at how many touches he does to remind the reader and 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 help the reader guess the ending without actually telling it. And then I notice all the times he does these sleight of hands that is the author does um, when he is deliberately not telling you something that would be very valuable to know. Yes. Right? Um, and. Oh, let let me give so the good. quick outline of it, Please and then do. you can fill in, because you, you, you told me you feel it's so rich, and I want to see what order the meatier parts for you. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the story tells us right away that we are in a, a zone that is populated not only by pioneers, but by the leftovers of people who've been following uh, armies. And clearly this is not the Civil War army, because West Virginia is not a state yet. So these are people who've been here for a while since some earlier campaign. And it could have been the Indian campaigns, uh, given where we are. It could even have been, I suppose, the revolution. But it seems unlikely because we have the sense that the main character, um, Doomdorf, actually was one of those people. And he'd have to have been 100 and some odd years old at this point for it to happen. But... What we get is a description of someone who has his own domain. He's taken over some land that has not been legally apportioned to anybody. The land is on a high bluff with a sheer cliff behind it. It's not very uh, good for farming, but he immediately uh, hires a bunch of people, pardon me, blacks, um, to plant an orchard of peaches And then those peaches grow, and he immediately turns them into peach liquor, which he then sells um, illegally, uh, 
because it's an abomination and the, the blue laws of militant Christianity presumably apply in this area, although it's hard to get them enforced. People come to this fallen, to what should have been Eden, to this fallen place. They get drunk. And so uh, he is seen, Doomdorf, as a purveyor of, of evil, tempting humans into their becoming their worst selves. Uh, my Uncle Abner, the narrator's Uncle Abner, and, Rand, and uh, Squire Randolph are coming to remonstrate with him to get Doomdorf to stop doing this. It's been going on for a long time. And Squire Randolph is supposedly the law in that area. But as they get there, they find two different people. One is a uh, carry nation kind of prophet, uh, uh, would-be prophet, a, a man who uh, is out there to destroy the stills. Bronson, and, that's his name. I beg your pardon? Bronson. Bronson. And a woman who is uh, the servant of Doomdorf. Um, and when Abner and Randolph ask about him, each of them says that he is there in his summer residence um, and he has not come out. He's got his feet under the blanket. It's a biblical illusion. What they discover is that he's dead inside a locked room, although when they seek to figure out how he died, both Bronson and the woman servant claim that they killed him. Um, now the question is, how did he really die? The story gives us loads of detail, and certainly on a second reading, one knows exactly what's going on mm -hmm. and can see how the detail is lorded in for us. Um, but at the end, we discover that it was not, in fact, either Bronson or the woman servant, but something else. And so the mystery, the Doomdorf mystery is solved. But what the solution means to us philosophically is not. That's for us to think about. And I would love us to, once you tell me, what meat in the story you've been chewing on. Mm. Well, uh, one, of the, one of the things that you left out is who the murderer was. <laughs> um, and I want to tell that because I think it's great. Um, by the way, anybody who uh, is looking for a copy of it, the PDF is on the website. And there's a terrific collection of Uncle Abner stories, go. I think it's selected Uncle Ab Abner stories on LibriVox, um, very well narrated, um, with great accents and all that stuff. Um, so the murderer is God, <laughs> at least according to uh, I guess Uncle Abner, um, and according to the reader, well, perhaps the murderer is nature. Or there is no murder, it was an accident, or, uh, and this is never mentioned in the story, although they do speculate, did he kill himself? In a sense, he did kill himself, right? Um, so what happened is, this uh, the murderer got in through the window, but he didn't open it. He, he shone his light through the window. It went into a, a container full of the clearest liquid, which focused the light into a spot on the wall, which went up to the uh, the percussion cap and set it off at discharging the sh shot from the fouling rifle, basically a shotgun. Well, the, the fouling, the rifle was held on the wall in two uh, 
hook forks, wooden right. forks. Right. Yeah. And uh, so uh, I, I was, I was, I, the first time I read it, I was like, oh, he's cheating. Melville Davison's post is cheating because he didn't tell us, you know, the exact dimensions of the room and how the gun was actually pointed at them. But actually, he's pretty good about that. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't really cheat at all. And that's, I think, one of the really cool things about this. Um, one of the uh, uh, people who wrote about this story called it, um, it set, said it made quite a sensation when it came out. And I can totally see that. Um, because what he's done here is he's crafted the story so perfectly that you are like, okay, it's this guy. No, it's this guy. Okay. Then you're, you're, and, and, and one character we haven't mentioned so far. So there's this unnamed woman who you say is the servant. I think she is the servant. I think she's also either the common law wife or a slave common law sex slave. Um, and that's very delicately touched on as is the slavery element of the story or not touched on at all, really. But, um, when we get her backstory, um, that's where the meat I really started noticing came in. She describes how she was taken by Doom, Doomdorf um, as a child. Um, she she remembers a wall, and she's she's described as foreign. I, I don't think we ever get her name. And she uses a um, basically a uh, juju doll or a voodoo doll to kill Doomdorf. She thinks um, she pokes it with a a needle, and it he later ends up shot in the chest. Um, she describes. Uh, a little girl who makes um, crowns out of yellow flowers and she remembers the sunlight on the wall and an old man and Doomdorf giving the old man a gold chain. And all of those images, the, 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 sunlight, the sunlight on the wall, the gold chain, the, um, the yellow flowers, and the many, 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 many times the sun is mentioned right the room was flooded with the sun the tall uh, uh, from the tall south windows right the fact that um it's the summer sun um he covers his feet in the sun right all of the the many 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 times the sun is mentioned it is it's like another character that's hidden there that we don't notice we think of it all as metaphorical but what i love about this story is that there's a whole other character who's not there who is actually really important. And that's the narrator who is telling us about his uncle Abner, but he actually isn't there physically in the room when uncle Abner and, and, uh, the, um, uh, what's the other guy's Squire. name? Squire Randolph. Squire Randolph are doing all the actions. He, he, he doesn't contribute. So it's almost like uncle Randolph told this story to me. Uh, uh, sorry. Uncle, um, Uncle Abner. Abner told this story to me, and I, now I'm telling it to you. And somewhere in the middle of the story, he says this really interesting line, which I, for some reason, I'm not seeing. But he says it isn't in as part of the storyteller's art. Um, it's not. I've, the, I've got it. If you oh, want, please, it. please read it. It is a law of the storyteller's art that he does not tell a story. It is the listener who tells it. The storyteller does but provide him with the stimuli. Right. So the stimuli here are the words, right? We are being given these words, and then we are constructing the story, is what he's saying. And, of course, 
that is how it feels, right? We are a participant in the story in a way that we aren't if we're just reading, you know, a standard romance novel or something like that, or a Western novel. Here, we are actively participating in solving the mystery. And we're in competition with not just the, the, uh, the sort of the uh, buffling, uh, buffoonish assistant to the, the, the actual detective, right? But we are competition with the author who is playing a game with us. Is it, can you figure out what I'm doing? I think this is so. Um, I, I want to make two points and then turn the floor back to you, if I may, Jesse. Sure, go for it. One is that one of the reasons we think of the son as a character here, the son as a character, is because, precisely because, the narrator who is telling us this story, whom you're focusing on, treats the son that way. Mm-hmm. He, he has Abner, who's figured out the, the what's going on, say to uh, Friar, Squire Randolph, let us go back up to the to the, the room where Doomdorf had been shot, murdered, uh, they think murdered, um, because the assassin is on his way. That is, the narrator has Abner mm-hmm. personify the son. And I think that's that's builds up this notion that there is a spiritual dimension to the world. There's at least personification. Uh, the other thing is that I have to report there was a time because of this uh, notion that we can see a tale of the great detective as being a fantasy work um, that I had used, uh, for instance, Agatha Christie's ABC murders as one week's reading in a semester long course on fantasy. And I did it for two or three years, actually. Um, in those days, the course had the class was perhaps 300 strong. And each time I asked the class, how many of you were trying to get the solution before Poirot did? And how many of you just sort of read along to see how Poirot um, came to solve a problem that none of the other characters could solve? And each time I asked, I got the same result. About 20% of my students, these are Michigan, University of Michigan undergraduates, I don't assert that they represent all readers of mysteries, about 20% of my students asserted that they tried to solve the mystery before the detective. The other 80% said they really didn't worry about solving it. They knew it was going to be solved, and they were just interested in seeing how it came out. Mm -hmm. So I, I mention that because of two things. One, it suggests that there is more than one way to read a story. In fact, universally, they enjoyed the book. There's more than one reading procedure that one can use with certainly a story like A Tale of the Great Detective. The second is that when you said, well, we are trying to compete with it. Well, you may and I may, but I don't think that we should suppose that everyone does. And when yeah. I've read this story, it seems to me that I got a very different pleasure from it knowing the answer. And I still could enjoy it with that different reading procedure. Yeah, I, I, the first time I read it, I, I was not I, – I'd read lots of stories like this before, but I did not know the answer until basically the last few paragraphs when he 
<laughs> he makes it pretty clear what's happening, right? Yeah. Um, now, one of the one of the things I noted um, in maybe the third reading is that um, when when we're given the room and the dimensions and the table and the container um, and the gun, um, it's a fouling rifle. It was loaded with shot. It had a percussion cap. Um, what we don't, uh, what we what we aren't told, one little fact that if it if it had been pointed to would have helped me a lot. Um, is I think it would have helped me a lot. Is that the hammer had not been, uh, it, it was not cocked, right? So yes, if you had, if you had, uh, as as does the um, justice of the peace in this story, if if you had gone into the room and seen the rifle on the wall, and then assume somebody shot it and put it back up on the wall, one of the things you could have taken note of, especially since you're looking at the percussion cap. Um, is that the hammer was not uh, had not struck right, and the fact that he doesn't mention that is it's kind of his his. I think he's he's doing a very delicate balance of trying to give you all the the clues he can without actually telling you. Look at this. Look at this. Look right, and and then in thinking about it that way, I was trying to figure out exactly when. Uncle Abner pretty much knew what was going on. So I don't think Uncle Abner knew uh, what exactly had happened until he they kicked down the door and had gone in and looked at the table and looked at the rifle. So I think at the very same point where Uncle Abner is looking at the rifle, that's when he figures out what had happened, Right. And that is kind of why we are not able to be as great a detective as him is because we are not taking note of the thing that he's taking note of. And yet, Uncle Abner is not the storyteller, right? Right. <laughs> the storyteller is his nephew, presumably, who has been told this story about Uncle Abner. So I wonder that in when Uncle Abner is telling it to the nephew <laughs> what he told him. So there's this extra, extra level right of of ooh it's a kind of a delicate dance and absolutely you can read these as just pure entertainment um and in fact we had a story on this podcast uh previously that does the same trick <laughs> but doesn't um treat it like a locked room mystery and it's a story called the stroke of the sun by arthur c clark in which an assassin uh, turns out to be the the um the sun <laughs> right? right and and the army doing a coup right and um the generals commanding that coup and then i was thinking about how that plays in this story like who is the murderer well one answer is god another answer is nature and yet the two of the characters in the story say these very strange facts they say i killed him i killed dudendorf right and the answer is, who killed Doomdorf? The answer is, I killed Doomdorf. And then they tell their explanations, one that I prayed that God would strike him down with fire from heaven, in which case he got his prayer, right? And the other one wished that uh, he would die, and it, many, many times she wished he would die, but until she actually used this child's magic, as they describe it, um, this juju doll or voodoo doll, and stabbed it with uh, a needle, that's the time that he dies, right? And 
And then, of course, what is what is um, uh, Uncle Abner doing there in the first place with this justice of the peace? They're there to seize him for the murders that he's done, right? The the trouble he's caused, all this trouble caused in the community by his liquor, which but he hasn't committed any murders directly. Aha! Uh-huh. Well, it's but indirectly other people, Exa- exactly. But other people have gotten terribly rowdy because and and them. and caused murders, right? That's that's in fact one of the reasons they're there is because he is he is um, there's a line that goes uh, he who lives by the sword shall die by the sword, well and the, and then our uncle Abner says make note of that justice of the peace make note <laughs> of that by, by the seri- very same weapon right and at that point in the story he knows or at least is very very much convinced that he knows who did the crime or how the crime happened. Um, Undoubtedly. But in a sense, he also killed himself because he was the guy, Doomdorf, killed himself. He was the guy who loaded the gun, right? So everybody there, in a certain sense, is responsible for Doomdorf's death. No one is responsible for Dooms... No person is responsible for Doomdorf's death. And that's a pretty amazing set of circumstances in which you've got people confessing to the crime um, and people uh, being not guilty of that crime, even though they will wish him dead. And then, you know, they're not going to charge God with a crime because he's hard to get, get handcuffs on. But um, it's, is it a, is it a, is it a crime? Well, his laws, like this is a very, very, very rich story in terms of not just, you know, solving the mystery, Right, it's a it's rich in it. It's like, well, who is to blame here? And I, I really I love that. I think one of the ways to to one one way you can come. I I agree. I I love the fact that it can be. We we can talk about it endlessly, and mm-hmm. I, but well, we won't today. But nope. um, one of the the ways one could look at it is to understand uh, that in fact it's not a glass of water or a bottle of water. Um, it is, in fact, a bottle of the clear peach liquor mm-hmm. that that Doomdorf distills. And so if it were not for that clear bottle of liquid, the sun's rays would not have been focused and given the amount of heat, yielded the amount of heat necessary to explode the percussion cap. Otherwise, it would have been by percussion only, um, hence the cocked or not cocked uh, hammer on the on the fouling piece. Now, one of the things I love about that, the fact that it has to be this thing that Doomdorf himself made, is that it allows us to see the sunshine, which is God's benignance, God's smile that brings forth fruit, that makes the land fertile, mm. that that resolves mysteries, God's own grace is distorted by what Doomdorf has created. Hmm. And so, bam, he's dead. Uh, The place at which I think we get to know that Uncle Abner understands is when Randolph says, well, we need to do this, that, and the other thing. And Abner says, in the law court, replied Abner, that procedure, asking people things, uh, would be considered sound sense, but we are in God's court. Hmm. 
and things are managed here in a somewhat stranger way. Before we go, let us find out, if we can, at what hour it was that Doomdorf died. Mm -hmm. So at that moment, we can know on a rereading that Uncle Abner has figured out if he knows where the sun is, then he can tell whether or not his hypothesis about the light going through the, the, the bottle of liquor could possibly work. Uh, so he knows at that point, right? the first column on the second page, mm-hmm. uh, he knows. But what I find as meaty as uh, all of the other things as well is that in that paragraph, what we have is an assertion that we are in God's court And he, that is Uncle Abner, is going to prove it not by using the kind of Bible thumping that Bronson uses, but rather straight up scientific deduction. Mm -hmm. Normally speaking, from the Renaissance on, there is a tension between scientific and theological explanations for phenomena in the world. And this story makes it equally easy, I think, to say, ah, it was the spirit of the universe that did this. Oh, no, 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 it was just natural law. Mm-hmm. Ah, it was just the man's character expressing itself. No, it was his social, the consequences of his world work in society. We can't assign any particular cause directly except the mere physical one, which takes the physical and somehow demotes it in terms, uh, in contrast to the ethical and the ideological, Mm -hmm. Um, which means that once you know the mystery, there's always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. Thank you.